We're going to pray again as we come to the word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your infinite wisdom, you have seen fit to provide us with your word, to lead us, to guide us, to shape us, Lord, to show us your ways. So Father, as we come to your word this morning, our prayer is simple. Holy Spirit, change our hearts, renew our hearts, lead us in your ways. Amen. Have you ever found yourself just lost in time? Like you start the day, you, you, you wake up, you feel fresh, you have a, a list of things that you're looking forward to getting done in the day. It, it, it might be that today's the day I'm going to get out and I'm going to mow the lawn and, and do the edges and, and weed the garden and, and you know I've got all these things that I want to do or it might be that uh, I've got a list of cooking and baking that I want to get done or uh, maybe, maybe there's a project you've been working on. Uh, Tony, maybe like today's the day I'm going to get those last dozen things done on the car. But then, then you think to yourself, just before I get started, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to have a cuppa, and I'm going to check Facebook, maybe watch a quick YouTube clip or two, just a little bit of Netflix, and then suddenly, half the day is gone. You ever found that happen? It's so easy, isn't it? We might feel that this is a bit of a, a modern phenomenon. Um, brought on by the advancement of technology. We've got so many distractions available to us right at our fingertips. But really at its core, it's simply that we get distracted from what, what's really important, what, what matters most in life. And we see this principle all the way back in, in the old fable of the tortoise and the hare. The hare becomes so preoccupied with himself that he forgets, he loses, sight of his, he loses sight of his goal, winning the race. We see it brought to the fore in Jesus' encounter with Mary and Martha in, in their home. When responding to Martha's complaint that Mary isn't doing anything, Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. We see throughout the Old Testament time and time again, the people of Israel get distracted from what really matters, their relationship with God and his big plan. This morning, we're going to pick up our series in Nehemiah chapter 5. Last week, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 1. We saw how Nehemiah was confronted by the news of the difficulties faced by the exiles in rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple. We saw his passion and his prayerful approach to seeking God's ways and God's plan. And we were reminded that like Nehemiah, we too are part of God's big plan and that we should not forget how incredible that is. And how incredible he is. In between chapters 1 and chapter 5, we, we see the exiles again facing significant opposition to rebuilding the wall. The people become discouraged and frightened. 
And yet despite their situation, God intervenes and he frustrates their opposition to his work. And his people and the exiles once again begin rebuilding the walls. Now in chapter 5, we find that as with many aspects of God's people, both back then and even today, they get distracted. They lose their focus on what really mattered. and They made some really, really bad choices. Some really selfish choices and choices that separated them at a, at a heart level from the God that they were in a covenant relationship with. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5. And let's see what fresh mess the exiles have gotten themselves into this time. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children are as their children's, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers have been sold to the nations but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us they were silent and could not find a word to say so I said the thing that you were doing is not good ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts, taunts of the nations of our enemies Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine and oil that you have been exacting from them. They said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as, he, as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may be he shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. Despite all that God had done for Israel to re-establish his people from exile, to redeem his promise to Adam, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, his promise to David, that, that through the nation of Israel, all the nations of the world, all the peoples of the world would be blessed. 
their life was not a bed of roses. It wasn't easy. They still faced opposition. We, saw, we, we see that in chapters uh, 2, 3, and 4. The, the opposition of, of Sambalat, the, the persecution where as they're rebuilding the walls side by side, one is building while the other is keeping watch with his sword and his spear. Life was not perfect and without trial and problem for these exiles. There was also a great famine that was making their life even more complicated. They were not in a position where they could provide for their families all that their families needed. The big issue is that they began going into debt to each other. Now, that's not a huge problem if they were just simply lending money to each other. But there was usury taking place. They were taking advantage of their own brothers and sisters in order to exact exorbitant amounts of interest that put them into a place where they had no assets, they had no means of any kind of income. And so they were then forced into slavery at the hands of their own people. This, for the ancient Near Eastern cultures, was not abnormal. But it should not have been something that came even close to the nation of Israel. A nation that was forged on the basis of God's freedom, God's liberation. They forged their national identity by being the people who God delivered from slavery. And yet here they are, behaving and acting exactly like all of the other God-forsaken nations around them. Instead of setting a different example of living life, instead of being a nation of priests to the nations around them so that the, the nations around them would look at Israel and say, these people are different. There is something unique about them, the way that they live, the way they relate, the way they treat one another. There is, there is something awe-inspiring about them, something different and unique that does not come natural to anyone. It must be from their God. That was, that was the calling on their lives, their, on, on their nation, that they would be set apart from the world in, in order that the world may see God's goodness and God's glory, His majesty and mercy. Nehemiah presents them with a scathing critique in verse 9, where he says, Ought you not to walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our, enemy, our enemies? They'd become a laughingstock instead of inspiring awe and wonder and, and the majesty of, of who God is and all that he has done. That they were known as the nation of hypocrites. I wonder today as Christians and as the church, we, we are God's ambassadors. His representatives to the nations and to the world, to our neighbours and our community. 
today, these last couple of years especially, life has been tough. It is full of challenges and difficult situations. I wonder if we were to reflect on the way that we as Christians treat each other, talk to one another, talk about one another. If we examine the priorities that we hold most important in our lives, the behaviours, the way we react, our attitudes, and all of those things that, that, that speak loudest and strongest, what is the world seeing? Are they, are they seeing an image of God's glory and God's grace? His gentleness and His compassion? The, the hope and the peace and the security that we have in Him, in Christ? Or are they seeing more of the same? More of what they could expect or should expect, have, have come to expect from, from any other group of people? Do they see a people who are hypocritical? They say that, that one thing is important, but then go and pursue other things. Do they see a people who talk about sacrificial love, but then only revert to, to putting their own needs and their own desires ahead of everyone else? Is the way that we, we live our lives as followers of Jesus pointing to a remarkable God who loves us in ways that we could never fully comprehend or understand or fully fathom or measure? Or we just... Another bunch of people looking out for number one. What does the world see of the church today? What does the world see of Christianity today? And what do the people of Bowen see in us today? I would suggest that today when the world looks at the church, it sees more of people who care more about themselves and their own circumstances than anyone else. Christians are in there fighting for themselves just like everybody else. We're not distinct, we're not separate. We have a tendency to desire to flee persecution, to flee difficulty and hardship instead of embracing the work of grace and mercy, instead of adopting a life that pursues God's heart for justice. A heart that says, I will wait patiently to be gracious to you because I am a God of justice. That's Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. A heart to pursue a justice that is not focused on retribution, but on restoration and reconciliation. For the unbeliever, where is the distinction between the church and Christianity and any other faith or any other group of people? You see, here's the problem. We become so distracted by what is wrong, what we see as wrong in the world. We've lost sight of what matters most. We've lost sight of the fact that everything in our life can change in an instant, in the blink of an eye. But God does not change. Everything for us can catch us by surprise, but God is never caught by surprise. So how do we live as people of the cross, as followers of Jesus in a time where there is so much uncertainty, such a lack of clarity in how we live our life? The only way 
that we can follow Jesus, that we can live for Jesus and reflect his grace and his light in times like this is to wade deep into the love of God. Wade deep in the love of God. Every year I, I go to Fraser with a bunch of other pastors uh, and, and we have a time where we can debrief together. We can unpack what God is doing in our life, the challenges that we're facing, the joys that we're seeing, the way God is moving, where we can, where we can pray for one another and journey together. A part of that is also doing a bit of time fishing together, like good disciples of Jesus. We start with fishing to become fishers of men. And, and so we're, we're fishing on the surf side of Fraser and we wear waders, which are these rubber boots that are, are glued onto these rubber waders to keep the water out and they come right up to here so that as the tide is coming in, we can wade out into the water. And as you do, you feel that the waders are loose around your legs, but as you start walking in, you feel the water press tightly around your legs, around your waist, around your chest, in order to get that, to cast that, that line as far out as you can. To wade means to go deep, to be surrounded by, to be immersed in. The only way that we can make a difference, that we can separate, be separate in our lives from the way the world lives their lives. The only way that we can demonstrate God's love and grace, His mercy, His majesty to a world that is lost, the only way that we can show them hope is if we first wade deep into God's love. It's so easy to be surrounded by the things of the world, life's achievements, Worldly possessions, and even more so, life's worries. But these things have a tendency to distract us from God's love, from being devoted to God's love. How do we get back to it? Wade deep. Wade deep into God's love. In one day, Job lost everything. Everything that had any sense of significance or value in his life was just stripped away in the blink of an eye. His response wasn't to complain about persecution. He didn't argue about matters of conscience or details. He didn't point the finger and, and lay blame. He humbled himself to worship God. Job spent time in the depths of his grief waiting in God's love. In times of crisis, is the church and is Christianity, do we, do we represent a place of certainty and hope and peace, a place of refuge and comfort, or do we simply merely replicate and reflect the chaos of the world around us? In the midst of everything that's been going on here in, in Nehemiah chapter 5, going on in, in Israel, Nehemiah sets an example for us 
of how to make a stand and how to be an agent of change for God's kingdom and in God's kingdom, for God's plan and for his people. And he does this by wading deep in God's love, leaning on God's love and not his own fragility. Verse 14, we read, Moreover, from that time that I was appointed to be the governor of the land of Judah from the Uh, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so. Because of the fear of God, I also persevered in the work on this wall. And we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. Remember for my good, O my God, that I've done this for the people. Nehemiah chose personal sacrifice in order to restore justice to his people. He chose generosity over personal comfort to ease the burden on his people. The challenge for us to, is, is to examine our hearts and our, examine our, our lives, our attitudes, our words and our actions. What are the things that we are holding on to in our lives that are impacting how we love one another? What, what are the behaviors and expectations that cause us to become bitter and angry? How can we better love one another, be patient with one another, serve one another? Let me give you some suggestions, and this is by no means an exclusive or comprehensive list. It could be through a meal, an act of service or helps, maybe through a word of encouragement, a word of affirmation, maybe an act of generosity, or perhaps Just some quality time. Maybe we need to start with forgiveness to surrender our hurt, surrender our bitterness and lay that at the cross. In John 15, Jesus had been talking about the importance of wading in his love. He uses some different words. He says, abide in my love. That means live, dwell there. Don't just simply visit. You know, we, we, don't, we, can't, we can't wade in God's love. We can't abide in God's love if we're just simply visiting from time to time on a Sunday morning or during the week, now and then. We need to make it our home. God's love is the place that we, we, we put ourselves to bed, where we fellowship, where we eat, where we, where we work Every moment of every day, wade in God's love. In John 13, Jesus gives his disciples a new commandment, an instruction to guide them when he is no longer in the flesh with them, a foundational principle with which to live their lives. 
a way in which they can bear witness to the world, the way they can shine their light into the world, God's light into the world. He says, this is, this is simple. This is, this is how you distinguish yourselves as, follow, as my followers, as my family from the ways of the world. This is what he says, John 13, 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. The only way that we can love one another is by wading deep into God's love first, to know God's love for us, and then to put that love into practice. Love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. For us to follow Jesus, to pursue his heart, to be his light in a world that is lost and broken and hurting, we need to wade deep into his love, to live his love and to love one another humbly, generously and sacrificially. Let's pray. Lord, we, we, we see these words. We see this example. Lord, we, we know our hearts. We, we know our, our failures, Lord, and, and the times that we try and we start and we fall. We make mistakes time and again. Lord, this morning we, we acknowledge that we can't do this without you. We need your love. We need your presence. We need your hand upon us. Holy Spirit, would you lead us and guide us? Shape us. Mold us. Make us more and more into your likeness. Lord, take us deeper into your love. That we may see transformation, not just in our lives, but Lord, the impact of the gospel of those who don't yet know you. Lead us in your ways for your glory and your kingdom. Amen.